I want to uh, read a couple of articles that I happen to see in various sources, a couple of different sources. The first source was the New York Times. Everybody knows this is Easter Sunday. I mean, after all, everybody has either Friday off or Monday off from your normal everyday work requirements because they recognize Easter as a special day for good old rabbits and Easter eggs. No mention of Christ, typically. But there were a couple of articles that I read that did mention Christ. I want to read them to you. I want you to listen carefully to what is being said. By first, a person who writes an op-ed in the New York Times, and the New York Times publishes this statement. It's titled, In this time of war, I propose we give up God. And the author goes on to say, God is responsible for war and violence and for oppression and suffering and suggests that people stop teaching children about him. And the author, whose name is Shalom Oslander, who is disillusioned about his upbringing in a religious Jewish community in New York, argues, now that's the New York Times statement that I just read, and this is his argument. God, it seems, paints with a wide brush. He paints with a roller. In Egypt, said our rabbi, he even killed the firstborn cattle. He killed cows. If he were mortal, the God of the Jews, Christians, and Muslims would be dragged to the Hague. And yet we praise him. We emulate him. We implore our children to be like him. Perhaps now, as missiles rain down and the dead are discovered in mass graves, is a good time to stop emulating this hateful God. Perhaps we can stop extolling his brutality. Perhaps now is a good time to teach our children to pass over God, to be unlike him as much as possible. Then he finally ends with, killing gods is an idea I can get behind. He's a Jew. He mentioned Passover. Did you hear that? He was a student of a rabbi who taught the Bible, but he rejected it. And he has nothing to do with a God who loves his people. He could see no love because he could not open his eyes to see. The second article is by a Christian, purportedly, I don't know what denomination this person is a part of, whether it's Catholic or whether it's some other Protestant denomination, certainly not Calvary Chapel, I hope. But this article was presented in msnbc.com. They are also, like the Washington Times, or the New York Times rather, very, very liberal. I should say Washington Post because they're among those who are like them. But here, this article is by a man who believes in Jesus Christ, sort of. He writes these, and this is his heading of his article. Breaking news! The body of Jesus was discovered by archaeologists working just outside of Jerusalem. Easter has been canceled. That's his headline. 
And then he goes on to write this. If that were actually breaking news, would it change your faith? Let this act as a Good Friday exercise that encourages us to look at our own faith. That's not a bad idea. But, he goes on to say, a priest and professor who taught a theology class at Loyola University in New Orleans explained that the Bible is a great book with profound stories that are not necessarily 100% accurate. And from Adam and Eve to Jesus actually walking on water, stories are presented as more of a visual illustration of a message than factual. Whoa, wait a second. This guy is not telling you the truth. But he's published in a widely read website and other documents that must have been, or media that must have been willing to accept it as logical. It's heresy. He goes on to say, and so I asked the question, if the body of Christ were discovered, what, or rather, would that change your faith? I know many will argue that Christ's body will never be found because of what is written in the Bible. And I say, yes and amen to that. And then he goes on to say, I understand that opinion, but considering the Bible is recognized by many studied theologians as a work that is not entirely factual, the specifics of what happened to Christ's body can be a fair discussion. That's been bandied about for so many years. There are so many who would argue, well, you know, there are other explanations of this empty tomb that you speak of. Some would argue they took the body. Some would argue that he was never in the tomb. Some would argue all kinds of different arguments to try to oppose the fact that the tomb is indeed empty. This guy would agree with all of them. He goes on to say the intent of this blog is not to change your beliefs, right, but it is intended to challenge whether your faith is based on all the stories in the Bible being factually accurate. My faith, he says, and belief system are based on the idea. Where does he get these ideas from? Based on the idea that every story in the Bible is not based on fact and that the stories of the Bible were stories designed to tell a story and convey a message. So he agrees with this great theologian that he mentioned from Loyola. Continuing, he says, it is difficult to pinpoint exactly when the Bible was written. Archaeologists have discovered evidence indicating that parts of the Bible preceded Christ's life, and much of the New Testament was written many years after Christ's death. Wrong. The stories were passed on from generation to generation through songs and verbal storytelling. We all know that when humans tell stories, these stories change, and when stories are handed down through generations, there is reason to believe the specifics of the stories may have changed, but the meanings remain consistent with the stories we know today. Well, that is kind of true. You know, you tell a story and somebody hears it and he's going to or she's going to tell that story to somebody else and there'll be a few changes along the way. That's normal. That's natural. The basic thrust of the story remains pretty well contained within each step along the way. But he's arguing that that would be cause to believe that the Bible over the course of years would have changed from its original writings to what we have now. There are thousands of manuscripts that all of them are actual records of the original writings with only a few words misspelled or added or detracted from the original. And nobody knows what the originals were, but I can tell you specifically, as we understand God's Word, Paul tells us this. 
The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And he also says that the Scriptures, all Scriptures, and Paul was recording for us in the earliest days, just after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that all Scripture, and he points to Luke's writings as Scripture. He points to, or Peter points to Paul's writings as Scripture. All Scripture, the Old Testament and including some of the Gospels that had already been written. All Scripture is given by God. God breathed. It's given by Him. And that means that it is truth. And it is perfect. Even as we have it. Though it's not a perfect copy, it is a very reliable copy. Like 99.95% perfect copy. And there's no changes, no distractions, no adding or subtracting from the Word of God in any translations, good translations, that could support the argument that it is not certain what this is all about. The Bible is so very, very clear. It speaks a very, very clear message. And that message is that Jesus died and on the third day He was risen from the dead. And He had eyewitnesses. Paul tells us there were like 500 who saw Jesus, His resurrected body, before them, speaking to them. He appeared immediately after His resurrection to Mary. However, Mary thought He was a gardener. She didn't recognize Him until He said, Oh, Mary. And when He spoke her name, she realized who was standing before Him. And she bowed to the ground and just wrapped her arms around His ankles so much that He couldn't move. And He said, Mary, you've got to let me go. I've not yet ascended to my Father. Later on that day, He must have spoken with Peter, we're told, privately. Remember, Peter had denied Him? Well, Peter was one of the ones who first saw Jesus after Mary. And he saw him with his own eyes. He spoke to him. We're told that in the Word of God. And then there were the two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus. They were walking along this seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus with their heads down. And they were distraught and worried and troubled. And all of a sudden, somebody comes alongside him and he says, Hey, what are you guys talking about? And they said, well, Don't you know what happened in Jerusalem these last few days? And so they explained to them, to Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus, but they talked to him about the death of the one they thought was the prophet of God. And then Jesus, still unknown to them, began telling them about all the scriptures that pointed to the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord, the Messiah, the one who was to come. He opened the scriptures to them. Now that's a sermon I'd love to have heard. But it wasn't until he broke bread that evening and passed that bread to those two disciples when they saw the nail prints in his hands as he extended his arms to hand the bread to them that they realized he is the one they thought was dead. And he had disappeared at that moment from their sight. But they saw him. They saw him. They talked with him. They knew him. Then again, we have another account which we will get to in our study this morning. The account of Later on, a week later, Thomas wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came to them in, the up, in, the, in that room where they were gathered together. 
and he did not believe what they had told him. Unless I see with my eyes the hands where the nails were put through and his feet and his side, I will not believe, Thomas had said. We sang a song this morning, Open the Eyes of My Heart. My prayer is that each one of us here, we may not see with our physical eyes, but let us all open our eyes of understanding, the eyes of our hearts, and examine what the Word of God says with regard to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how it applies to all of us today. Remember the last Sunday and Thursday night, we looked at Philippians chapter 2, and that's where I want to turn with you now. Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to reread all of the verses that we had read last Sunday, verses 5 through 11. So turn in your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. Now verses 5 through 7 talk about the death of Christ. And it is here in verse 5 of chapter 2 of the book of Philippians that we read, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal to God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Then on Thursday night, we focused on this one verse, verse 8, that simply says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And today we're going to focus on those last few verses, verses 9 through 11, where it says this, Therefore, what he just said is there for this person. That's what the word therefore means. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name above which which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the statement that Paul is making to the Philippian church. Jesus Christ is alive. He is risen. And you should have said he is risen indeed. You know, you're missing your cue. So we'll start over. The whole thing, everything that I've said so far, I'm wiping off the tape and we're going to start afresh. Not really. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, again, it's there for that purpose, to let us know that God, the Father, has highly exalted Jesus Christ, the Son. This is good stuff. This is what we all need to hear. This is what we all need to see with the eyes of our understanding. Well, how do we do that? Well, we'll get to that as soon as we turn some pages and study a few other passages of Scripture that speak about these things. I'd like, first of all, to turn to Acts 2. Acts chapter 2. Where Peter is speaking. Now, remember, Peter had seen the Lord, the risen Savior, he had denied Christ, but Jesus forgave him. And he appointed Peter as sort of the head of the church in Jerusalem. He wanted to make sure that Peter was strengthened by the confrontation that he had with Peter on that day. It wasn't condemning. It was a way for Jesus to encourage Peter to carry on the work. But they had to wait 
50 days after the resurrection before Peter would be able to do that. But when Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of what we call Pentecost, it's the Feast of Weeks for the Jewish people, but the day of Pentecost, 50 50 days after the resurrection, Peter and all his disciples were baptized by the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in tongues. The Lord blessed them with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and they began to minister in the power of God's Spirit to all of the people who were present. And there were many, many people there. And in this portion of Scripture, Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 23, we read part of what Peter had to say. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up. Remember, that's what Paul had just said in Philippians, God raised him up. God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And he quotes now Psalm 16 to prove that point where he says, For David says concerning him, I foresaw. David, what's he saying? David foresaw. David had eyes of his understanding opened. In that long ago message that he wrote in Psalm 16, he wrote this messianic psalm because God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, had prompted him to write these very words. And he says these, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades. Now, he's not talking about himself here. This is why it's called a messianic psalm. Everybody knows this, the Jews as well as Christians. He's saying, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, referring to the Messiah, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And he didn't. He was in the grave for three days. If he had been in the grave for four days... His body would have seen some corruption, but that did not happen. You have made, he says in verse 28, known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now Peter goes on in verse 29 to say, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So in that day, you could go to the tomb of David, observe the fact that David was buried and he was still in his tomb, even up till that day. There's a lot of question as to whether we can identify completely, 100% of the surety that we know where his tomb is now. We don't. But then they did. And then again, he says in verse 30, Therefore, being a prophet, David was a prophet. David was king. David was not priest. That's important, because those three offices were only held by one person. That would be Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, of David's body, according to the flesh, that is, this material that we are, all of us, presently part of, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. David's throne, the Christ, Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David. It hasn't happened yet, but that's what David knew was going to happen because it was a promise of God the Father that it would happen. Verse 31 says, He, foreseeing this, David, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus, God has raised up. He's repeating it again, just so that you remember and know that that's the focus. Jesus is no longer in the tomb. He's been raised up from death into eternal life, of which we, all of those disciples, we, not just Peter, we are witnesses. That's awesome. That is so awesome. This Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are witnesses. You know, in court, how many witnesses do you need to prove the veracity of an argument? In the Jewish tradition, you needed two witnesses. Here, they've got at least 120 witnesses. On this day, and if they had been able to gather all of the other 500 people together in Jerusalem, they probably were all there, that is a substantial number of witnesses to proclaim this is truth. So he says, therefore, oops, there it is again, therefore, it's there because of what he just said, because Jesus has been raised up from the dead, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out that which you now see and hear. And finally he continues with, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, now this time quoting Psalm 10, also a messianic psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, that's deity talking to deity, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, again, Peter's morning to make sure what I just said, this is the reason I just said it. Therefore, let all the house of Israel and everybody else who hears these words Know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So we sang that song today, Open the eyes of my heart, I want to see you, Lord. I want to see Jesus. Do you want to see Jesus? I know I want to. I know I'm going to. Because not only is it true that he was raised from the dead, but because he was raised from the dead, we all also will be raised from the dead as well in the resurrection of the righteous. And that is going to come. When Jesus, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul tells us that he is going to come from heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father now, but the Father is going to one day tell Jesus now, go. And Jesus is going to come into our realm once again with the archangel, with a shout, with a blast of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air, and then we shall always be with the Lord. That's awesome. That's power. That's glory. And that's what's in store for all who believe. Now, there are many who say, well, I don't know, that's a story that's in the Bible, but I don't know if it's really true or not, so it's probably speaking of some kind of special ethereal thing that maybe I, I don't understand, but it can't be real, it can't be true. That's what this agnostic has said in his article in msnbc.com. That's what the atheist Jew believes. It can't be true. What do you believe? Are your eyes open? Physically, yes. I can tell you're not sleeping yet. Most of you haven't nodded off. That's good. I'm glad to see that. But I'm talking about your spiritual eyes, the eyes of your understanding. But before we get to that portion, I want to add one more thing out of the book of Acts that I think is very, very important to you and I. In chapter 3, and it's a much shorter passage that we'll read, beginning with verse 14, it says this. 
Acts chapter 3, verse 14. But you, speaking to the Jews who were there present, you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. So Paul, uh, Peter again confirming this actually has taken place. It is true. It is to be believed by all because there are many, many witnesses who have gone to the death proclaiming this truth. I don't know of any other statement that has been made anywhere else in the world that is so well documented and so believed by so many people who are willing to die for their belief. That sets us apart as believers. Romans chapter 1. The agnostic and the atheist are mentioned here. I didn't need that anyway. The agnostic and the atheist are mentioned in Romans chapter 1. Paul tells us, quoting from Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the earth His handiwork. He goes on to talk about the various different kinds of individuals, Jews or Gentiles. And he condemns all of mankind by saying they are without excuse because they should have heard, they should have seen, they should have known, but they chose not to receive it. They closed their own eyes to the truth. They blocked their ears. Yes, they were blind, but it was only because of self-blindedness. And Paul is here saying, in spite of that fact, the Word of God still is indeed the very Word of God and not the words of men. And he says in verse 20 of chapter 1, For since the creation of the world, His, God's, invisible attributes are clearly seen. Can you see that which is invisible? I can't. I'd love to be able to say, I've seen an angel. I haven't. I'd be able to see, I've seen a vision. I haven't. I've had dreams, but I don't remember my dreams, so I may have dreamed about things like this, but I know I didn't. I know my wife has. It's part of what our journey was where she was presented with the truth in a dream. I've shared it with you before, and I'm not going to bother the details now, but God visited us, and it became real to both of us. They're clearly seen to all mankind, not to just Christians, but to all mankind, being understood by the things that are made. Since you can't see those things that are not seen visibly, you can look at the things that are made, if you assume, of course, that they were made by a Creator. And I would have to say that anybody who thinks otherwise, you've closed your eyes. even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are, what? Without excuse. If you don't believe in the creation that is spoken of in the book of Genesis, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. If you can't put your arms around that and say, I believe that with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I support the words of Genesis that says, He made the world. He made the stars and the heavens, the lights in the cosmos. He made all of what we see. John, in John's Gospel, very much agrees with that statement. In the very first verse of chapter 1 of the book of John, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and it was by that Word 
that all things were made. He's identifying Jesus Christ as the Word of God, and he says it's Jesus Christ who created all things. Paul agrees in Colossians, he says exactly the same thing, that he created all things, both visible and invisible. God, the Son, is a creator of all things, both visible and invisible. But they would not accept it. It is there. I saw a video that I didn't watch all of, but the scientist that was talking about it, this is back in 2015, by the way, and you may have heard of this. In 2015, they were able to devise a technique by which they would be able to hear, if you will, gravity waves. Now, Einstein had predicted gravity waves, but nobody had discovered them until 2015, when they had the equipment that was able to focus in on that frequency of somehow then be able to hear the actual sound of the gravity waves that Einstein predicted must be. Now, I think that's probably way over my head, and I, I don't know if you all understand it either, but the point of all this is the scientist spoke of the Big Bang, but then he said, it seems like there was a creative power behind it. Whoa, scientists admitting God? Because if it's not God, then who would the creative power be? In 2015, the scientists were able to observe something of the creation. So all scientists who have been involved with any of that research will have to conclude, unless they're completely blind and won't open their eyes, that there is a God. And the creation has left behind evidence. You don't really need gravity waves to figure that out. Just look at the stars in the sky. Just look at the flowers as they bloom. The tulips when they come up out of the ground and you can see the design. Just think of the eye that you are seeing those tulips with. How intricately designed it is. All of our body parts. Each one of them functioning the way that they should. Why? How? Scientists don't really know. We start out as two separate cells. One from the man, one from the woman. They come together. The egg is a woman's. It's fertilized. And those two cells combine, and now the genetic process takes place. And they combine their 23 chromosomes into a single cell, and that single cell starts to multiply. And as it continues to multiply, it becomes a human being. In short order, it already has a beating heart, lungs, a brain, Arms and legs, fingers appear, eyes and nose and ears. How does that happen from just a single cell? They do not know, but God does. What makes it so that the cell, when it reaches a certain point of time, that it decides, well, I'm going to be an eye. I'm going to be an arm. Oh, I'm going to be a leg. They don't decide that. It's external. And scientists will agree with that. Something external is going on beyond that cell itself. Nothing in the programming of the cell indicates that any of these things can happen, and yet it does. Why? Because God has done it. Well, I don't want to belabor the point. Let's turn now to John. Remember I had mentioned those who had seen the risen Savior. 
Thomas was not there, as I said. But he came the second Sunday after the resurrection, just seven days after Jesus was raised from the dead. And he's with the disciples this time, and Jesus comes into the room, and by the way, the doors were locked, the windows were fastened, he just appeared. I want to give you a hint of what resurrection bodies are going to be like. Paul tells us in Philippians that our vile bodies, and he uses that word vile bodies, corrupt our inadequate for certain bodies will be changed like unto His glorified bodies. Well, His glorified body apparently was able to go through walls. But He could eat. When He appeared before them, after they settled down, He said, do you have any fish? And He ate with them. I don't know about you, but... My guess, in our glorified states, it'll be without calories. We won't get overly obese from eating too much. But we are promised in the Word of God, great feast. And I'm so looking forward to that. But Jesus asked them for food to eat. He wants to show them, see this? It's not a spirit. It's flesh and bone. You notice he didn't say flesh, bone, and blood? Because the blood had been drained out. He's no longer blood-driven. He's spirit-driven. And then he says to Pete Thomas, Thomas, come over here. Put your hands in the holes of my wrist. Thrust your hand into my side. And Thomas looked at Jesus dropping to his knees, my Lord and my God. He worshipped Jesus. Now we know that anybody who has read the Word of God should understand when somebody worships Jesus, oh my God, that's blasphemy. You can only worship God. Jesus accepted worship, not only then but many other places and times. He's God. Only God can receive the worship of men. Jesus received the worship of Thomas. And then Jesus said this, Thomas, you've seen with your eyes. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. That's you and me who have believed in Christ as Lord and Savior. We see with eyes that are not physical eyes. I won't read it all, but I just want to reread what Jesus said to Thomas so that it emphasizes the point, I hope, and makes it clear in your mind. This is what Jesus says in verse 27 of chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. He said to Thomas, Reach your fingers here and look at my hands and reach your hands here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. He's still saying that to anyone today. And everyone. He wants everyone to come to Him. Through faith in Jesus Christ and what He accomplished on the cross when He said, It is finished. And He raised from the dead. That is a ratification of what Jesus had done on the cross. God the Father said, Yes and Amen. 
And he raised him from the dead because that was indeed the gospel in its completion. Going on to verse 28, he says, And Thomas answered and said to him again, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So again, I repeat that for a reason. Turn with me to Ephesians now, chapter 1, verse 16. Paul's writing to the Ephesian church. He's commending them for the things that they've been doing, the faith in Christ. And Paul says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. These are important things. And revelation in the knowledge of Him. Wisdom, revelation, knowledge. Those are three things that we are able to obtain if we ask by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has said, ask of the Spirit in my name and it will be given to you. Those are the things that we all need to be asking for. Wisdom, understanding, revelation, knowledge. That is why these people who have written these words that I read earlier are without Doubt lost. Until they open their eyes, they will not see the truth. Paul tells us that the Word of God is absolutely useless to anybody who is in their natural state of mind. The natural man cannot understand, he tells us, the things of God. If they are spiritually discerned, you need the Spirit of God. And that can only happen when you receive Christ as your Savior. And when you do receive Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God enters into you as a temple of God. And He regenerates you, makes you alive. Your spirit until then is dead. And you cannot discern the things of God unless you are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you get that? Do you understand? Is that true or not? He is risen. That's what makes it true. He is risen. Amen. Paul goes on again in verse 18 now of Ephesians chapter 1. He says, this is also important. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Now in some of your translations it may say, the eyes of your heart. Remember we sang that song, open the eyes of my heart. Open the eyes of my heart. That's where it came from. We want our eyes to be open. Not the physical eyes. Oh, we need the physical eyes to be open if we're going to see physical things, material things. But we need the eyes of the mind, the eyes of our understanding, the eyes of our heart to understand spiritual things. And this is why you need that. He says, so that you may know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Remember I had said earlier this morning, He's seated with the Father and He's going to come again for His church. He's going to get up off of that seat where He's seated and He's going to come for His people. That's you and I if we've accepted Him as our Lord and Savior. If we've confessed our sins before Him and required 
Nothing more. And are required from Him. Nothing more than that. Continuing, Paul says, far above Jesus is all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He is exalted above everything. There is no other name in heaven or on earth whereby men must be saved, Peter said. Paul tells us very, very clearly, quoting from the Old Testament record, Peter also quotes from it. Psalm 10, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies your footstool. There's coming a day when that will be taking place. He's been exalted by the Father. He's seated next to the Ancient of Days. He's there. He's living. Making intercession for you and for me. What a God we serve. What an awesome God we serve. Listen, it's not just New Testament doctrine that we're talking about here. Turn with me to the book of Job. The book of Job is one of the oldest books of the Bible. It's just before the book of Psalms in your your Bible as, as you have it now. It's not the first book in the Bible. It's somewhere in the middle of the Old Testament, just before the book of Psalms. Job chapter 19. You may remember the story of Job. He was in such terrible shape. He was really attacked by Satan. And Satan had destroyed everything except him and his wife. Everything he owned. Job had a couple of friends, three friends, who came to him to help him in his grief, in his torment. They weren't any help at all. But Job in chapter 19 says something of great interest to me, and I hope to you as you read it together with me, listen carefully, read it with me, verse 29, or 25 rather, of Job chapter 19. I know, Job says, that my Redeemer lives, and He, Jesus, the Redeemer, shall stand at last on the earth. After my sin is destroyed, Job says, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job is saying, my flesh is going to be lying in the grave. It's going to deteriorate from dust to dust you came, to dust and dust you shall go. He recognizes that fact. He's sometime in the area of the time when Abraham was on the scene. This is before the Mosaic Law. This is well before the nation of Israel was formed as a nation. And Job is here, a follower of God, recognizing that there is going to be a resurrection. That he, though his body will be in the grave, will one day be risen up from the grave and his eyes will see his Redeemer. That's Jesus. Old Testament. Some 3,500 years before Christ. Turn to Hebrews 12. One verse. Hebrews 12, 2. 12, 2. There, I said it right. 2. 12, 2. Hebrews says, Looking with your eyes, look. Eyes, physical? No. Eyes, spiritual? Yes. 
Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Why? Even despising the shame, the joy that He looked forward to was you and I entering into a relationship with God the Father, eternally with Him. The children of God being given their inheritance. The children of God being able to stand in the presence of a holy God and not be condemned because of sin. Because when we are raised up from the grave, if we should die, or when we are caught up in the air as some will be in the last days, I'd love to go that way. It may not be necessarily so for any of us. But it's time to think about it very, very soon. This is going to happen. He's coming for His church. And we will see Him in our glorified bodies, with our glorified eyes. The Bible tells us no man can see God and live. That ain't going to be the problem for us in those days. Do you believe these things? Jesus here is being spoken of by the writer of Hebrews. And he says, we are to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. These words are words of truth. And he's the author of them. The word of God has spoken. The writer of Hebrews also says in chapter 1, that in diverse places and sundry times, the Lord spoke through His prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken through whom? Jesus. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He started it, He wrote it down, and He's going to complete it. That's what finisher means. But He went to the cross, despising its shame, looking forward beyond the cross to the joy that would be His and ours in that day when He comes for His church. What a glorious day it will be. What a wonderful thing it will be to stand in the presence of God for all eternity, worshiping Him with all the saints who have ever come before us, all around the throne of God, praising Him, worshiping Him, giving Him thanks. And how do I know that? Well, I'll end with a reading from Revelation You can turn there with me if you have your Bibles to chapter 5. John the Revelator. Jesus reveals a great many things to John in this wonderful book of Revelation. But it's here in chapter 5 that the heavens are opened up to John for the first time. And he sees the glory that is yet to be revealed to all believers. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, and take note of how many times you see the word, I saw, I looked. Here we go, verse 1. And I saw, John speaking, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's the Father, a scroll written inside and on the back was sealed with seven seals. And then I saw, he's seeing something with his eyes, people. He's observing. These are his spiritual eyes. These are the eyes of his understanding, the eyes of his heart. In a vision, he's seeing these things in the way that they will appear when we all are there together with him. 
He says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? There's only one who is worthy. He tells us in verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's speaking of Jesus, the root of David, another name for Jesus, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. How has he prevailed? By dying on the cross as the Lamb of God who was to take away the sins of the world. He tells us, verse 6, and I looked, he saw again with his eyes, he's apparently seeing things shown to him. I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders, there's a whole lot going on in heavenly places that we cannot know. Remember, Paul said, I know a man 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, but I was, he was raised up. He's talking about himself. He was raised up into the third heaven, and he saw things unspeakable, things that you couldn't talk about. He had no words to, to describe. Now, Paul was an expert with words. One of the chapters that we have looked at, Ephesians chapter 1, just the verses that we read, it's all one one, run on sentence. He's wordy. You think I'm wordy? Forget it. You don't know anything about wordiness until you have Paul stand before you, and one day he will. I'm pretty convinced of that. We'll be learning from men like Paul, David, Samuel, Moses, John, Peter, James, Mark, Luke, all of them, they've got stories I want to hear. I think heaven's going to be a very exciting place. I don't know about you. Maybe you're not into playing harps on a cloud. Good, because that's not what you're going to be doing. You'll be ever learning, never satisfied, but never unsatisfied. I don't know how it all works. That's up to God. He hasn't really revealed that much about heaven. You know that? He only says that he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. No idea what that's going to look like, but I do know this. We will be there when he does that. Now, the angels were with God when he created the heavens and the earth. This one. But this heaven and the earth became corrupted. Why does he need a new heaven and an earth? Because the old has to pass away. That's why he says... Old things are passed away. All things are made new because it will be a sinless world and heavens in which we will be occupants. Verse 6 says, And I looked. There it is again. He's seeing something. So should you be. He looked and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb He's taken the form of that which became the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And he's taken that form in John's presence in this heavenly scene to let John know that this is the connection that John needs to make. Connecting the dots with what you see to what you know. He says, a lamb is what was before him as though it had been slain.
Then it tells us in chapter 5, verse 7, I just skipped a little bit of the scripture here just to get to this point because I know the time is running late. Then he came and took the scroll, Jesus, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, the Father. And now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb and worshipped him, each having a harp, a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they, the elders, sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, some of your translations say they shall reign, talking about they because they don't believe that in that translation that we are present in heaven when these words will be spoken, but I don't have a problem with it. Either way, those of us who believe will be in heaven to experience this. Last time, I want to read the words, then, John says, I looked. It's not over yet. He's still seeing more. I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. So there's 24 elders there. There are all the saints there. There are four living creatures that we can't understand what they are, who they are, or why they're there, but they are there in heaven. And we will see them. We will know them. We will recognize what they are when we get there, although we can't describe them any more than uh, they're just sort of uh, four creatures. But they're living. 24 elders... Those are redeemed men. We don't know who they are. We could guess, but it doesn't matter. They're elders. John says in verse 11 again, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and all the elders, and the number of them, this is amazing, was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's a lot of angels. That's a lot of redeemed people. That's a lot of creation that can vocalize and apparently we'll have one language or maybe not. We may be speaking English and others will be speaking Hebrew and others will be speaking Arabic and some others will be speaking Russian and some will be speaking Bulgarian, some will be speaking Portuguese, some will be speaking Spanish. I don't really know. None of us can know. But it all will be understood as it is written here, this is what we will be singing or speaking before the throne with a loud voice. You need to practice this. If you as Calvary Chapel people are convinced that you know that you are going to heaven and you are ready to receive Christ as your Lord and your Savior, if you haven't, do it now. And you can become a part of the church. And when the church is raptured out of this place, you will be standing in the throne of God and you will be singing these words. So maybe you should memorize them now. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb. Oh, yes. Worthy. Every creature, verse 13 says, which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor, glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Do you remember what we were reading earlier? Paul said it. Peter said it. That every knee shall bow 
every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is true in heaven. According to what we just read, everyone in heaven, under heaven, on the earth, under the earth, we all, everyone, will be making this proclamation, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Why? Because He's risen. Amen.